0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, why smell may play a far more important role and why we click with certain people than we may have realized. We dig into the chemistry and social chemistry. We try to get a sense of where a very volatile oil market is headed and what it might mean for us when it comes to the price we pay at the pumps in this country. The James Webb Telescope is sending back its first images revealing. Deep space, millions and billions of light years away, with never-before-seen clarity. We find out more about the Canadian contribution to the project and hear from a space historian who's documenting the journey of what he calls the most complex scientific spacecraft ever launched. But first, Canada's premiers wrapped up two days of meetings with another loud call for Ottawa to provide more funding for a healthcare system in crisis. We speak with the CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association about what, if any, progress was made. Speaking of shows you've probably seen before, let me tell you about the plot of this one. The premiers get together for two days of meetings, and uh, they yell at Ottawa for not giving them enough money for something. This time, obviously, healthcare, this has been a constant one. Uh, So that's what happened today. The premiers, territorial, provincial, were in Victoria for two days at the Council of the Federation meetings. Healthcare, top of the agenda for obvious reasons. There is a crisis in our healthcare system. We've been talking about that on the show for ages now, certainly exacerbated by everything that we live through or have continued to live through with the pandemic. Uh, So the premiers are united. They want the federal government to boost its share of funding to 35% from what they say is 22% currently. Uh, BC Premier John Horgan, who was chairing this meeting before he steps down uh, in the fall, says federal concerns that the provinces could reduce health care spending if Ottawa tops up its payments are a cop-out.
1: And I think it's a cop-out and it's a a mechanism to divert attention for the federal government to say, well, we don't want to continue to fund health care because you might do something else with the money. It all goes into a pot and it all comes out for the services that Canadians need.
0: So last year, the prime minister said that we would have to wait until the country was through the worst of the pandemic before any increases would come. Uh, Horgan, of course, points out the country is now eight months past the turning point of the pandemic. Uh, So... It's time to have that conversation. Quebec's Premier Francois Legault, always one uh, to yell at Ottawa, says the crumbling healthcare system is the most important problem we face.
2: We are here 13 premiers who say the same thing. We cannot afford anymore to finance 78% of healthcare expenses. Healthcare expenses in Canada right now, it's over $200 billion a year.
0: Of course, the federal health minister points out that Ottawa has transferred billions to shore up provincial and territorial health systems and has agreed to more, but they haven't really offered a timeline for negotiations. The federal government also disagrees with that 22% figure. They say it's more like 38%. If you factor in all kinds of other stuff. Anyways, while they're fighting about money, needless to say, the health care system needs help. Uh, joining me now is Tim Guest. He's the president of the, or the CEO rather, of the Canadian Nurses Association. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Pleasure to be here. So, just your expectations going in. I know there was a press release from your association, and uh, what were you hoping to see going in? And did you see it?
1: Well, going in, what we were really hoping was that the healthcare crisis and the issues that we're, we're facing in the healthcare systems across the country were top on the agenda for the the premiers, and we were glad that that happened. We were glad to see that that. Uh, Conversation happened. Um, We were glad to see that um, they came out with a a statement about uh, healthcare, but we were really hoping to see a little bit more concrete action from them.
0: Yeah, tell me about that because, of course, the way it's framed, it always becomes about money. But I know, I mean, even John Horgan today talked a lot about about resourcing within the healthcare system. I know that's something that's very close uh, to your heart. Something you've talked about a lot is just the need for a better human resources plan for the entire system countrywide?
1: Yeah, you know, what we have been recommending is that uh, all governments, federal, provincial and territorial governments need to work together to create a pan-Canadian health workforce strategy. The reality of it is um, any of the provincial and territorial governments could make decisions to increase the health systems in each of their jurisdictions. But without an adequate health workforce, there is no increase in capacity to the system. Um, Any change in uh, capacity to improve access to care for individuals is fundamentally uh, impacted by uh, the capacity of the health workforce to deliver on it.
0: And of course, as we know, because we've been reading about and talking about closed emergency rooms and so on, I mean, we're, in, we're suffering through, you're suffering through a tough, tough summer.
1: Yes, you know, it, we, we, in 2009, we predicted that we were going to be significantly short of nurses by this year. And, and we're seeing ourselves to be there. Uh, in fact, we're seeing ourselves to be worse uh, than what we had predicted was going to be the case. You know, nurses are telling us across the country from province to province to province that they are working short, that there aren't enough of them working to meet the needs of the individuals in their care. And uh, that is contributing to high levels of burnout. Uh, we're, we're seeing um, burnout rates as high as like 94% of nurses reporting experiencing significant um, burnout uh, symptoms. of nurses say that, uh, as I said, that the the staffing levels are insufficient in in some provinces. And and what's even more concerning is the numbers of nurses that are either choosing to go part-time or choosing to to quit their jobs uh, and leave the profession altogether. Um, Any strategy that the premiers come up with to recruit uh, nurses into the health system will not work if we don't retain what we already have
0: how do you do that because and we were talking to an emergency room doctor uh with with the Canadian emergency the, the association of emergency room doctors last week and he was saying that you know I think they were down to three nurses in their yard ER. they had to close because of covid people going off to do other things you know and and anyone we were saying anyone who's ever been in an emergency room or any hospital any part of the hospital knows how dedicated nurses are so when they're hanging up when they're saying that's it I'm done that 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 that's an alarm bell i mean that's 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 the red flag is it not
1: it is and to be honest it's been an, an alarm bell that we've been raising now for a number of months. you know as we started to see nurses um, reporting deterioration in their mental health status and increase in levels of burnout, we were starting to to say to to government and and to uh, employers that we need to do something to address this that if we don't uh, if we don't see this um, uh, uh, turning around, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And that's exactly where we are.
0: Are you at all concerned that, I mean, I know they talked about something other than funding. You know, the, the narrative always becomes about the money. But are you concerned that this is just another, the you know, the usual Ottawa provinces bun fight that we see every time this happens about who's going to pay for what? And meanwhile, you know, it's not helping nurses.
1: You know, it certainly looks that way. You know, you know, there are some things that I have to say that, you know, we're, we're encouraged that it was a top agenda item for them, for the premiers. We're pleased that the premiers all agree on the need for a pan-Canadian health human resources plan that they spoke about. Uh, you know, we were really glad that there was recognition that the nurses and healthcare workers are the bedrock of the system and the impact that the pandemic's had on them. Um, And and we certainly agree that there is an urgent need for all uh, levels of government to sit down and and discuss the sustainability of our system and and collectively uh, uh, work together. We agree that there's more investments needed. Um, We agree with the premiers on that. Uh, We don't necessarily agree with them that it shouldn't be uh, targeted. Uh, We believe Canadians have an expectation that outcomes will come from increased funding that um, they want to see that areas of need are the areas that receive proper funding and that care is there when they need it and for what they need it for.
0: Yeah, no, that that was certainly a topic of debate today. Was Ottawa wanting some accountability as to exactly where this money is going? And the province is, of course, bristling at that idea. Tim Guest is our guest this half hour. He's the CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association. We're talking about uh, the Premier's meeting in Victoria, wrapping up today. Of course, healthcare at the top of the agenda for them, their demands that they receive more funding from Ottawa to help what they say is a healthcare system in crisis. Uh, We know that that is the case in provinces right across the country. When we come back, a bit more of uh, what the Canadian Nurses Association have been proposing about some solutions, because clearly what's needed here is not just money, uh, but money well spent on things that make sense. And we'll get to that after this. Well, the Premier has wrapped up two days of meetings in Victoria today, where I am, Uh healthcare at the top of the agenda. For them, they're asking the federal government for more funding for an increase in funding, nearly $30 billion in increased funding uh, from 22 to 35%. That's what they want to see. 22% is what they say they're getting now. Um, they want 35 And they say the system is in crisis and the money is needed to help that out. I'm speaking with Tim Guest, who's the CEO of the Canadian Nurses Association, about some of what they hope to see. They did we're pleased that the healthcare was indeed at the top of the agenda, and that there were some. Uh, there was a united front from premier, premiers about uh, what the problems are and perhaps how to fix them, including with a pan-Canadian uh, strategy for uh, workforce strategy, really, which is really part of the problem here. What are some of the other things, Tim, that you'd like to see that could be done in the short term that would would make a difference for you and, and your membership?
1: Well, we, um, you know. There were a number of strategies that we have uh, spoken to to government about. You talked about one of them, that was uh, creating the Pan Canadian Health Workforce Strategy. We've also suggested that there's a need to implement evidence-based, sustainable, and innovative retention strategies for nurses and other healthcare workers immediately to keep them into the workforce. The uh, federal government started with um, with that in the last federal budget. An example. They did provide some tax incentives for uh, uh, nurses that are working in rural remote areas for um, uh, loan forgiveness, as an example. We've suggested that that should be widespread. Um, You know, we recommended that there's a need to look at um, optimizing workloads and the working conditions that nurses are currently working under, um, looking at strategies to decrease excessive overtime, uh, looking at strategies to to eliminate unreasonable shift lengths that we're seeing, uh, we're seeing and hearing about nurses that are are being asked to work 24-hour shifts. Yet we would never get on an airplane with a pilot that is working beyond uh, uh, an acceptable uh, uh, length of time, and and yet we will we will allow a nurse to work uh, an ex- excessive number of hours like that. We've also talked about um, needing to optimize scopes of practice to maximize uh, the full capacity of all workers in the healthcare system to, to increase capacity. And then we've also talked about the need to um, have a pan Canadian mental health strategy specifically for, for nurses and other health workers. Um, they've identified deep. Deteriorating mental health status is a significant issue uh, associated with the the demands of the pandemic. Um, We've we've talked about the need for an increased capacity in the educational system for nurses and other health workers. We did hear today, uh, there was an announcement in Nova Scotia where they've increased 200 nursing seats, uh, which, you know, uh, we're nice, we were glad to, to hear there's been some movement uh, in, in, on that front. Um, and then uh, we've also talked about the need to fast track the licensing and employment of internationally educated nurses and other health workers to pre- and provide them with um, appropriate mentoring programs so that they can transition into the Canadian health system in a successful way.
0: Because I imagine that one is still that last one is still not working, or at least not as well as it could.
1: No, you know, we hear from internationally educated nurses, specifically for us, that um, there's significant costs that they incur when they try to get a license in Canada, significant lengths of time, uh, the process can be um, cumbersome, uh, and we believe that there's uh, there's certainly movement happening to improve, and I think it's better than it was in the past. Uh, but there is still room to, to make the process uh, easier. Um, you know, some examples, uh, you know, the, the nursing education across the world is not always uh, the same. And in Canada, we have multiple um, uh, regulated groups of nurses, licensed and registered practical nurses, depending whether you're in Ontario or the rest of the country, registered psychiatric nurses, registered nurses and nurse practitioners. And um, uh, an individual that's maybe educated in, a, in another country may not meet the minimum requirements to become a registered nurse in Canada, but they may meet the requirements to be a licensed practical nurse. But the process to determine that is not always seamless. And some nurses, uh, internationally educated nurses, find themselves applying to be licensed as a registered nurse, finding out they can't, paying all of the, the fees, and then, having to start the process over um with a, a different regulator on the licensed practical nursing stream. we also so, hear a lot of these individuals are uh, they're um under um, employed and and the costs of of this process are are a huge barrier for them.
0: I have about thirty seconds left Tim. Uh, are you would you like to see the Prime Minister sit down with the premier sooner than later? It sounds like they're still not really talking.
1: Definitely. Uh, we believe these issues need to be resolved quickly. Uh, we, we believe that this can't wait until the end of the pandemic. Uh, we need to really see them uh, sitting down and collectively talking about uh, actionable items that can, can be moved forward collectively to resolve this issue. Um, it is just going to get worse if we continue to just uh, bat the ball back and forth across the net.
0: Tim Guest, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. You know, I search high and low for interesting topics to share with you, and this one comes from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. A new study there from experts discovered that body odor may contribute to social bonding. That's right. The results suggest that people are more likely to develop friendships with individuals who have the same or similar body scent. The results imply that, as the saying goes, there is chemistry in social chemistry, as the lead author says. It's not that we're like goats or something like that, but we do rely on more dominant cues in social decision-making, but smell... Our nose, for instance, plays a bigger role than previously thought in our choice of friends. So joining me now is Inbel Ravrabi. She's a PhD student in the Department of Brain Research at Israel's Weizmann Institute of Science. The lead author of the recent article in the journal Science Advances called There is Chemistry in Social Chemistry. Thanks for your time tonight. You're very
3: welcome. Thank you for reaching out.
0: So I guess it makes sense that we would use smell, the sense of smell, to to navigate The world and navigate friendship, Uh, but what did you set to find? Set out to find. You had a specific hypothesis, I know.
3: Yeah. So actually, many mammals, from rodents to non-human primates, uh, use their own body odor as a template to then compare to others' body odor, and by that they decide whether to approach or avoid the other. So whether uh, this is a friend or a foe. Um, And what we had in mind is that. Uh, We know that we humans also smell ourselves almost constantly, but mostly subconsciously. And we also smell uh, the others. And we don't really know what is the function of it. On the other hand, we know that friends tend to be similar in many, many aspects. Um, For example, they are similar visually. And, well, this is kind of trivial, but this goes, uh, of course, to values, uh, personality, and to less trivial things such as genetic similarity and even um, neural response similarity. So what we thought is that maybe friends are also similar in their body odor, and this uh, comparison between the self and the other may be a mechanism also in us, in humans, and this may... Be one factor that tune our tendency to become friends or not.
0: So not just sort of the kinds of things that we think about, like love at first sight, or or that we have a lot in common, but but that in fact we we actually develop these uh, friendships partly because of the way we smell. You call them click friendships. What what are those?
3: Yeah. So I think we all know this feeling that there is chemistry between us that it just works that we click at, th- at first sight and. You know this thing that you immediately understand the other. Feel like you you were friends for a long time, and this thing is very common. Um, I mean, common to uh, to understand. So it's very intuitive and, and very easy to say if someone is is one that you uh, clicked with or not. It's it's highly distinctive, very uh, dichotomic.
0: How did you figure this out, or what was the experiment? In other words, or how do you how do you judge someone's odor? I guess that was the uh, the tough part.
3: So we wanted to check uh, specifically click friends, at least for this stage, because this clicking is, is kind of, you know, feel almost like a magic. It's, it's really hard to explain. And we thought that maybe uh, this is a good candidate type of friendship that, that may be uh, in, in relevance with uh, biological signals. So what we did, we first collected body order of 20 click dads, so click friends, that uh, both indicated that uh, their friendship uh, started uh, uh, in uh, clicking with each other, and we did it by asking our participants to sleep for two consecutive nights with a t- uh, kujan t-shirt uh, that we provided them, and by that observed they, their body odor. So they had to sleep alone after voting uh, for two for three days foods that may influence their body odor, such as garlic and onion and also to take showers with unscented soap that we provided them. So, so we then collected only their own body odors. Then we took their body odors to our lab and tested them uh, using an electronic nose. So this is a device with 10 sensors. So we have a number uh, for each sensor and then we can, um, we can compare between the different odors. So we can compare between 10 sensors and another um, result of, te- of the 10 sensors, how much, uh, the numbers were similar or not. And besides, what is the degree of chemical similarity, um, between click friends and also to compare it to random dad, right. to random friends. Uh, no, sorry, to random, uh,
0: to pairs. random people, right? And, yeah.
3: And then what we found is that, uh, click friends brain did more similar, uh, in their body odor chemically than random pairs.
0: It was not a massive difference, but it was a significant difference, wasn't it?
3: It was significant. And then we wanted to ask whether we humans can also identify this similarity uh, in body odour. So is this the case also when, when we talk about the human perception? To do this, we ran a few experiments. One of them was very straightforward. We just asked the participants, new participants, not, not the ones that provided us their body odour. Let's call, call them the smellers now we just ask smellers to smell for each time uh, two two body odors that were either of uh, click friends or a random pair. And then we ask them to rate how similar or different these body odors are in each trial. And what we found is that um, humans perceive the body odor of click friends as more similar than random pairs. For now, we get that friends or clique friends are more similar in their body order, both uh, chemically and um, regarding the human perception. But now we wanted to ask whether we can uh, not only uh, find this, but also predict um, clique friends. Because that would be interesting, because
0: uh, based on that hypothesis, and I know there are some limitations to all this, but based on that hypothesis, you could almost predict whether people would get along or not. Almost. Yeah.
3: Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so we wanted to see whether using body odor alone we can predict this phenomenon of clicking of, of this immediate bonding with someone. So, to test this, uh, we recruited another cohort of, uh, of participants. We asked them also to donate their body odor, just as I told you before, and then to come to the lab and play the mirror game. So, we had a, a men's session and a women session. And in this session, what we asked them to do is to, um, to play in purse the mirror game in which they had to move their hands as synchronized as they could. And this enabled them uh, to smell each other's body odor, even most, mostly subconsciously, uh, because they were half a meter uh, apart from each other. So we then asked them uh, to indicate whether they felt that uh, they clicked. And also to indicate, uh, on 13 aspects of, uh, the quality of the interaction, how did they feel? So how, uh, how much they liked the other, uh, how much they felt that there was chemistry between them, that they could be friends and so on. And what we found is that we could predict, um, clicking, uh, by body odor alone in 71% accuracy with 71% accuracy and also 10 out of 13, um, aspects of uh, of social interaction quality
0: there is indeed chemistry to social chemistry then
3: yeah yeah so this is exactly what we conclude that there is indeed chemistry in social chemistry um, and of course I, I should uh, say that this is one uh, aspect out of many that uh, that are related to to this uh, clicking uh, it's not the only aspect that is relevant um, but I think that it's it's quite um quite amazing that body odor uh, plays such a role in our social interactions w- that, that we just totally not aware of.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it makes perfect sense. But I guess it, in a lot of cultures, it's just not something we talk about very much, is it?
3: Yeah. So, so in many cultures, there are many taboos regarding uh, body odor, especially um, cultures like ours. Mm. And I think that the really interesting thing is that body odor is much more relevant than, than what we think. And we tend to think of, about ourselves as highly distinctive animal, not related at all sometimes to other animals. But what we think here is that maybe it's really the case that there is a mechanism I showed you of other, many other mammals here that, that I think is, is really intriguing. It's it just that maybe we smell our own body odor and this, you know, we are all, always with ourselves. And we just compare it to the others by the other. And this is a very important factor in our entire social lives. And we know that, that this play a role also in choosing um, mates and, and sexual attraction. So we know that it's not uh, specifically to friendship. It's, it's a, an, an entire mechanism uh, that play a role in our social uh, lives.
0: So where do you take this research now? What's, what's next?
3: So next, we want to um, to further test whether this is indeed the mechanism underlying this phenomena. So what we are going to do is to manipulate it, manipulate people body odor, and see when uh, they smell someone with a match body odor, they really tend to to like them and to uh, and and willing to be friends uh, more than uh, when they smell mism- mismatched body odor.
0: In Reverby, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating. Uh, I look forward to seeing what happens next.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Not to use an old cliche, but they do say the only certain thing is uncertainty, and that is particularly true for oil prices these days. Earlier this month, the price of crude plummeted by ten bucks in a single day, uh, and then it plummeted by eight bucks the other day. <laughs> Again, <laughs> seven or eight. It was big. Now, consumers here in Canada caught a bit of a break late last week. Um, There was a bit of a drop in gas prices, so that was a relief. Um, But it's certainly something we've been talking about all summer, and it doesn't look like it's going to get much better fast. There's issues with refining. There's issues with supply. Um, and then on the other side, there's this push and pull going on because, of course, there are fears of a recession. So you have this idea that, that that you know, that, that there is demand for oil and there's not enough of it. And yet there's this sort of idea that there's also going to be less demand. So we're in strange times. And to top it all off, of course, the Canadian dollar, which usually tracks quite well with the price of oil, is not tracking with the price of oil right now. So we're paying a bit more on that front, too. Chrystia Freeland, our finance minister and deputy prime minister, did get into trouble, though for saying this about, uh, about high gas prices.
3: I believe that the energy crisis that the world is going through right now absolutely does mean that we need to focus on the green transition.
0: Yeah. I mean, she's not wrong. But is that what people want to hear now? Is that what you want to be told when you're – trying to fill up or making some tough decisions about what to spend your money on this week is that, oh, it's all part of a transition. Of course not. We understand the long game here. Transitions take time. And this might be a very bumpy one. At least that's the sense we're getting right now. Um, But to talk about the green transition when people are asking pretty clear-cut questions about, hey, listen, I'm having trouble putting food on the table and filling up. Uh, What can you do to help me out? Or how much longer is this going to take? Or is there anything out there you can do? It's just, it's tone deaf. The affordability issues are here and now, not uh, not in some transition that's taking place or is about to take place or is taking place. Anyway, so what is happening? Where is it headed and what will it mean for you, the consumer, in the coming months? We thought we'd find out and who better to talk to than Rory Johnston. He's founder of Commodity Context. That's market research into oil and gas. You can find it on Substack and he joins us now. Thanks for your time.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Ben.
0: So uh, for those of us who don't pay close attention to the uh, to the oil market, other than when we fill up, uh, what has been going on the last 90 days or so? Because it seems like it's just been a roller coaster.
2: Yeah. And, you know, just for the benefit of kind of your listeners, I'm actually going to rewind even a little bit earlier than that and kind of start out the year. So we started off 2022 with, you know, like a building crude oil crisis there wasn't enough crude oil u.s production wasn't growing as fast as it had historically done uh, which was the main thing u.s shale patch had essentially kept a a cap on oil prices for much of the past decade that had really slowed down into the pandemic and we had this you know surging demand coming out of uh, coming out of covid Um, you know at the beginning of the year things were looking extremely strong and we didn't have some of the demand concerns we have you know today so we start off as a crude crisis, and then fast forward a couple months, and it was kept getting worse and worse and prices kept going higher and higher. and we almost hit $100 dollars. But just before that happened, you know, a surprise to many people, myself included, Russia decided to completely break with every possible you know norm and invade Ukraine. And that obviously pushed the market. Into absolute overdrive, Uh, oil prices rocketed higher to hit their, or this is crude oil prices, you know, rocketed higher to hit their their highest level since the 2008 kind of mega price spike. But on top of that, we also had this explosion uh, and kind of breakdown of the global refining market, which is frankly something that we really haven't seen historically. The refining market has just been always very well supplied so on top of even when you know you or I are seeing, let's say, $120 at, the, at you know, at the you know, on the screen for oil prices, we are actually paying more like the equivalent of $180 oil because of that refining bottleneck. And you know, the way you measure that, there's something called a crack spread, which is the difference between the price of oil and the price of something like gasoline. Normally that's ranges in, you know, $15, maybe $20 if it's a really good year for refiners. That was more like $60 to $70 at the height of this crisis. Um, so all that together really pushed pump prices higher. Then finally the, the you know for for you know Canadians, the biggest difference in this oil price cycle that we haven't experienced really in, you know, in, in modern memory at least, is that the Canadian dollar didn't rally back with the price of oil. Normally, when we have you know $100 or more for crude, the Canadian dollar is near par with the US dollar. Whereas for the majority of this, and still today, we're sitting at near 80 cents to the US dollar. So historically, we got a bit of a buffer with our currency appreciation. Uh, but now, you know, we don't have that buffer. So we're paying an extra 20, 25% of the pump, uh, more than we would be used to all else equal. So I think- All that combined has really just contributed to by far the highest, you know, nominal and honestly real kind of price uh, paid at the pump for consumers. So we're in a really, really tight moment. And I think it's really hurting people. I mean, it, it, you know, it's costing my family, you know, depending on the week, $100 to $150 to fill up our, fill up our family car. And that is, you know, that really bites. Um, and I think a lot of Canadians are feeling that cost pressure right now. And to make matters worse, everything else is also getting much more expensive. So I think we're even noticing, you know, you know the wallet's already feeling tight. And then you have, to, and then you go and you see two dollars plus a liter for gasoline at at, at the station. And I think it's really contributing to this overall feeling of you know high inflation and really eroding purchasing power for Canadians.
0: If we break it down a bit, we know the situation in Russia, the situation in Ukraine is probably not going to change in the short term. Uh, it doesn't look like the Canadian dollar is going to rally back either. So I guess the one area where there could be some relief is in is in refining. Is that is that correct? Do we see anything any any relief on the on the horizon here?
2: Yeah. So I mean, the way I've been describing what's happened in the refining market, uh, and I wrote a piece on on commodity context uh, two weeks ago or so on this, and what, essentially what happened was was COVID collapsed the bridge we had in place between call it the legacy era of kind of old refineries and all the new refineries that we were expecting to come online this year and, and, you know, even last year and beyond. And what happened was, a lot of the refineries, you know, a lot of refineries in North America, for example, are extremely old. There's a, there's a refinery in Houston, we've all been watching that's right on its last legs, and it's over 100 years old, which is extremely old yes. for, you know, this kind of infrastructure, um, you know, well past its kind of, you know, initially conceived, you know, you know, service life, like well beyond probably double plus, right. So a lot of those when they were on their last legs, COVID hit, you know, gas prices, I mean, around the corner for me in Toronto, you know, gasoline was going for 65 cents a liter, which I had never seen it in my life. That kind of environment was obviously not great for refiners. And anyone that was, you know, considering closing down in the next couple of years decided to accelerate those plants and close down immediately. At the same time, a bunch of the refineries that were supposed to be coming on in 2020 and 2021 and into this year were all postponed and pushed back, if not explicitly in terms of a strategic purpose, but, because of all of the disruptions and labor disruptions and supply chain disruptions, and everything else. So we had this kind of gap that opened up between those two kind of realities. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the benefit, you know, the good news, the optimistic take here is that all of those refineries that were going to be coming online still are coming online. They are just coming online a little bit later. So we're getting a lot more refinery capacity this year than we were, than we were expecting, you know, back in 2019, um, and into next year. So I do think that the refinery side, you know, the refinery crisis is fundamentally short lived. But then I think that just shifts us back to the crude oil issue again. And I think that's going to be much more kind of intractable on a longer term basis. Because again, for you know, it's hard to you know remember just how normal uh, you know the you know rapid pace of U.S. shale production had become in the decade prior to COVID. U.S. shale producers accounted for about two out of three of every barrel produced incrementally globally. Two you know two thirds of growth of oil supplies of the last or the pre-COVID decade were the U.S. That is just a level of dominance that really has never been witnessed in the oil markets history before. And I think, you know, now we're seeing growth at far slower rates, despite much, much higher prices. And I think that combination is going to make it very, very difficult for the market to balance anytime soon, because really outside the United States, OPEC is mostly tapped out. And then you're looking at Canada, which is going to have some growth, but it's reasonably slow in terms of oil market price response. And you have a couple other countries, mainly Brazil and Guyana, and outside of that, there really isn't much oil coming online anywhere else. So no, I think no, this they, is the big no. challenge, you know. So how high do prices need to go uh, to incentivize this kind of production growth? And I think that's what, unfortunately, what we're going to have to find out. I'm
0: talking to Rory Johnston. He's the founder of Commodity Context, market research at oil and gas. You can find that on Substack. We're talking about just the year that 2022 has been in the oil and gas uh, business, specifically at the pumps, but also what's behind it, the fundamentals. It's been a very strange year. Lots of things that we were used to seeing and we have not seen this year, as Rory was mentioning. A lot of that is down to both the price of crude after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as well as a crisis in the refinery uh, system driving up prices, and the fact that the Canadian dollar hasn't rallied around the increasing price of oil, which is, of course, in of itself Uh, strange. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about just uh, what the future may hold. I know it's we don't necessarily want you to get at the crystal ball. I know it's tough in this business, but uh, we'll try anyway after this. My guest this half hour is Rory Johnston. He's founder of Commodity Context. That's market research into oil and gas. You can find it on Substack, you can also find Rory Johnston on Twitter, where you can uh, see what he has to say or preview what he's writing on Substack as well. Uh, Rory, there's been a lot of fuss recently about how, you know, the idea of price destruction and how these oil prices will, in fact, uh, gasoline prices will come down eventually. Uh, because, for instance, as the finance minister said, we're moving quicker towards a green economy and so forth. Is any of that make any sense at this stage of the game, or is that all kind of far off in the distance if you're the average consumer?
2: Unfortunately, I do think it's still mostly far off. That said, you know, with prices this high for gasoline and oil, more broadly, all else equal, it's definitely going to accelerate the energy transition. But the other challenge is that many of the reasons that we have high prices in many of these uh, fuels and broader commodities are these kind of supply chain bottlenecks, these issues that are still coming out of COVID. And those affect, you know, renewable, you know, our, our electric vehicle production and renewable technology uh, kind of investment as much as oil and gas in many ways. So, you know, my family was just looking at a, a vehicle recently, and it's really hard to find an affordable family sized vehicle right now in Canada. Um, you know, on the electric side, it's it's still tough. There still isn't a huge amount of availability, and and kind of delivery times keep getting pushed back. I do think, though, you know, like like that transition is fundamentally inevitable. It's just a question of timing. And I do think, you know, to to your initial point, you know, high gas prices are going to incentivize that. You know, one hundred and fifty dollars oil is going to push towards electrification much faster than fifty dollars oil would. All else equal.
0: When we look at what's happening now with, in terms of the economy and predictions of, of uh, perhaps a recession now often and, and what's going on in China as well with what we think may be another resurgence of COVID, uh, which could also uh, dampen demand for oil. A bit. normally you, it's, it seems odd that you have these sort of polar things pulling at the price of oil, one of which is high demand and low supply, and the other is this idea that the economy is weakening. Uh, where do you see oil going in the next few months if either of those two things play out?
2: Yeah. And, I, you know, and I, so I've been in the industry about a decade. And normally when oil analysts are debating an outlook, you know, one person's bullish and one person's bearish on the price of oil. Normally, the difference between them is maybe a million barrels a day. Usually less. And, and, you know, most of the big talking points are kind of hundreds of thousands of barrels a day in terms of scale. And again, for perspective, globally, we consume about give or take a hundred million barrels of oil a day. Mm-hmm. So we're talking very, very small percentages, you know, above and below, uh, leads us to kind of big differences in outcome. But the pace at which things are changing this year. You know, you know, we're talking two, three, four million barrels a day swings in outlooks of major fundamental variables, whether, you know, whether or not that's U.S. production, as we were talking about earlier, or, you know, OPEC spare capacity, or is Russia going to be able to continue to produce anywhere near where it is right now without the assistance and capital of Western oil majors and oil field service companies? And then, as you were saying, China is this massive question. You know, you know, the latest data we have from China, showed that in their latest kind of wave of lockdowns, uh, demand in China fell by somewhere in the ballpark of three million barrels a day, or three percent of global kind of demand in the in the span of two months. That is normally the amount that you know global demand grows by over the course of two years. So we're talking, you know, things are extraordinarily volatile, which I do think helps go a long way to explaining why prices have been so tremendously volatile. I think everything is just volatile right now, which is you know particularly difficult. Uh, in a whole bunch of ways it makes it really tough for consumers to figure out how to plan for the future and how to budget it makes it really really difficult on the flip side for producers to you know think are these prices sustainable or you know let's rewind you know you know a week and a half ago and any Any producers that were considering increasing investment to produce more. Well, you know, last Tuesday, oil dropped by more than $10 a barrel in a single day in the third worst day for oil prices in the market's history. So, you know, (laughs) it's really, really hard to be sure of anything right now. And typically what that just means is, you know, a lack of action and people kind of, you know, waiting and seeing how things turn out. Unfortunately, we're waiting and seeing how things turn out in a pretty bad starting position. It's not like we're it's not like we're comfortable right now. So I think this is the challenge that we have to face. And I, you know, my presumption is that eventually we will start to see faster growth out of the U.S. shale patch again. But I think that you're likely going to need higher equity prices in order to for those companies to feel like they're justified in doing so. Because the big reason many of them haven't been investing like they used to was, you know, is that they have, you know, in the in the decade prior to COVID, that period I was saying where they were two out of three, you know, two out of every three barrels produced incrementally or growth, you know, they actually made very little money. In fact, they you know as as a sector they lost almost half a trillion dollars of investors money in unprofitable production so many investors many holders of 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 you know stock of these companies are saying don't invest anymore who knows what's going to happen you know finally i get my payday after a decade of you know relatively negative returns so i think this is the challenge we're facing now and with you know, with the central banks right now, you know, focused so much on inflation and tightening policy, this is causing equity market volatility and oil and oil producer equity values or stock prices have plummeted over the, over the past month, which again, if, I, if you think that's the main thing that could get these companies producing again, well, we, we've taken a massive step back on that front. So I think, you know, only time will tell, but I think that's the challenge we face right now.
0: And I guess for Canada, uh, I have about a minute and a half left here. What does that mean for, for the oil patch here? Because clearly the same companies, first of all, there's ESG pressure on a lot of them. Uh, and B, if they're not, uh, you know, if they're seeing a volatile market and um, stock prices falling, they're also good, probably going to be hesitant about reinvestment, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. And then add on top of that, things like concerns about, avail- you know, pipeline availability and all the classic concerns that that, that have kind of plagued uh, the Canadian oil patch and oil sands in particular, I do think that we will see some incremental growth out of Canada, you know, nothing like the heady days of, you know, 2010 to 2019. Um, But I do think that, you know, it will be one of the few places in the world that will continue to grow production, but again, at a much, much slower pace. And unfortunately, because of, well, U.S. shale, uh, we always talk about, you know, you know, will U.S. shale come up or down? It's because they're uniquely fast in in responding to prices signals whereas the canadian oil sands is some of if is some of if not the slowest responding investment on the planet in the industry you just have such a high hurdle because these projects you know, take so long to build and so long to pay off. The example being, you know, something like you know Suncor's Fort Hills mine, which is one of the ma- one of the one of the last kind of oil sands mega projects to be built. That will be producing for decades and decades. Uh, whereas an oil, uh, whereas a U.S. shale uh, well will produce the majority of its useful oil in the first eighteen months. It's a much different kind of a kind of production method. And I think that's why you know, for better or worse, you know, we're we're going to have to depend on U.S. shale to kind of hopefully come to the rescue and start pumping more at some time soon here. Roy Johnston, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Ben.
0: Well, did you happen to see those images today, some new ones released of, taken by the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, Google had them featured on their search page today. They are absolutely phenomenal. I, I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking at. The descriptions were quite lovely. Um, but the images and just the clarity of the images is just mind-blowing. Uh, when it was first described, you you had the, anti- yeah, you, that's what I, perhaps people would have expected, but just to see them actually Published is, uh, and it's just the beginning. This is just the beginning. As uh, Eric Smith, the chief scientist for NASA's Astrophysics Division, said today, the world's vehicle for deepest space exploration is open for business. So NASA has indeed, NASA has indeed released new photos from its James Webb Telescope today that offer a glimpse into. Dying Stars and Distant Galaxies, to say the least. Uh, Those images were released today during a broadcast. That was one day after the White House released the first image from the telescope. That was a big deal. Uh, Sarah Gallagher, who's a science advisor to the Canadian Space Agency's president, says it was an emotional day because the telescope has been more than two decades in the making. The web is, of course, a $10 billion partnership between NASA and the Canadian and European Space agencies. Natalie Ouellette is a web outreach scientist here. She says the instrument will now be turned over to the scientific community.
4: We're starting the scientific operations, so we're almost handing over the telescope to the scientists all over the world who will be using it for their own projects. And that's already been started. It's in full swing now. And we have the first year of the telescope time, all scheduled with really exciting projects. And uh, more projects are going to be proposed in the fall as well. So we've got years and years to go of great scientific discoveries. We're opening up a new window on on the universe with an incredible tool to do it. Mm -hmm. In such a small amount of time, really a fraction of the time it would have taken for Hubble to take images like this, we already see so much more detail, so much more structure, many more galaxies. Everywhere you look, there's a galaxy or a star. There's There's something, and it really shows that the universe is filled to the brim with stuff in it.
0: Filled to the brim with stuff, to say the least. My next guest has spent four decades documenting every phase of the Hubble and now Webb telescopes and is seen as the on-the-scene historian of those enormously complex collaborations. Joining me now is Robert Smith, historian of space specializing in astronomy or historian of science specializing in astronomy at the University of Alberta at Edmonton. Thanks so much for your time tonight again. My pleasure. Always fun to catch up on these things. So I was really, the one of the first people I thought of when I saw that first image yesterday was you, because we talked about this. Uh, and everything had gone really well in the deployment and so far. What was your take on those first pictures that we're seeing over the last 24 hours?
5: They're terrific. They really show that the telescope is working as planned. Everything went remarkably smoothly in this period period between launch and starting of scientific operations probably more smoothly than almost anybody had expected. And this is a huge change from what happened when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched back in 1990 because Hubble had a problem with its main mirror. It was a a bit too flat at the edges and so the images from Hubble were out of focus for a few years until Hubble uh, shuttle astronauts could go fix it, whereas Webb is working perfectly right from the get-go.
0: You mentioned, of course, for Webb, there would be no fixing if there was a problem. So just as well, you called this, I think at one point, the biggest gamble in space science history. It seems to have paid off so far. It it is remarkable that it's gone so well so far. And and I guess just the images
5: show that uh, so far so good, right? Absolutely. And as you say, it, it is a telescope that You can't fix by sending astronauts up with screwdrivers. It's a a million miles away. It's beyond the moon. And there was so much emphasis in the construction of Webb on testing, making sure that you'd really tested out the system. We'd really driven out any possibility of errors or blunders because once a telescope's gone... It's, it's gone. As I say, you can't have an astronaut, as happened with the Hubble Space Telescope, an astronaut go fix it.
0: And uh, there's something for Canada to be proud of here as well, isn't there?
5: There is, because there are two major contributions from the Canadian Space Agency and Canadian scientists, engineers, and, and they come with what's called the fine guidance sensor, and that's a key part of the system that keeps the telescope pointed at the astronomical targets because it's not a question if you move to an astronomical target you take a snap then you move to another one you have to stay pointed at the targets for extended periods of time often many hours and so you really need to keep the telescope as stable as you possibly can no jittering um, and So the Canadian fine guidance sensor has been working extremely well and and the uh, telescope is highly stable. So that was absolutely critical to its performance. Canada also provided what is called NIRIS, the near-infrared and slitless spectrograph. That's one of the four scientific instruments aboard Webb. And in fact, NIRIS provided data for one of the uh, images that was shown today to do with an exoplanet, an exoplanet over a thousand light years distant. And that information concerns the atmosphere of the exoplanet. So this is a planet moving around a distant star. And the information that came back is that there is water vapor in the atmosphere of this planet. There's cloud, there's haze, and so it was suspected from Hubble observations that there was water vapor in the atmosphere of this very distant planet, but um, Webb has confirmed that. And as I say, that's a, a, a contribution of uh, the Canadian instrument.
0: So if we compare this to what we were able to see with Hubble, just how much, I mean, I'm looking at the images again now, and they're they are they're just so mind-blowingly clear, um, and I don't Fully understand what I'm looking at when I look at the Carina Nebula or the or the or the Southern Ring Nebula, but it's just the 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 quality of the images. How difficult is it to capture that that kind of
5: an image? The telescope has to be working really perfectly. You, this is a highly precise telescope. Big, powerful telescopes are really precision instruments, and so they look really big they look kind of clunky but they have to work to incredibly tiny tolerances and so the James Webb images because the Webb mirror is over six meters across those images are very sharp because the telescope is um, a lot larger than Hubble and so the Precision of the images depends on the optical performance of the telescope, and the telescope is because it's working extremely well. Then you get those really sharp images, and I encourage everybody um, to actually take a look at those images. And it's easy to do. You could Google the Canadian Space Agency; they're they're on show there, or you go to the NASA website, nasa.gov, and you can zoom in and out of the images. And you can really see uh, astonishing amounts of structure and detail, much more than you could see on the front page of a newspaper or uh, from a, a newscast on the TV. And it's really easy to do. As I say, they're readily available at this point. The
0: use of the word stuff everywhere you look was, was interesting because it, it's certainly not scientific, but does it ever describe it well? There must be an overwhelming amount of things to learn
5: from even these images. That's right. And it's these images represent, in a way, a kind of graduation party, you could say, for the telescope. it, it, it The um, scientific life of the telescope has begun. The commissioning period when things were being checked out, things were being tweaked, that's now over. These images show the enormous promise of the telescope. And so... Once the scientific programs really start getting underway, then people will find there are questions they should have been asking, things they didn't really realize to start with. Now they're beginning to understand things better. And so hopefully the the current plan is that um, the James Webb Space Telescope will operate for about 20 years in space. And so Uh, For the next go-round with observations, people will be um, more clued in to what the telescope can do. They will have a clearer sense of what kinds of questions they should be asking. And so the telescope and the uses for it will evolve over time. And so one of the things that's often talked about in connection with these kinds of, of projects is The conscious expectation of the unexpected. That is, you're not quite sure what will turn up, but you surely expect things to turn up that you'd not anticipated.
0: Robert Smith is our guest this half hour. He's a historian of science specializing in astronomy at the University of Alberta. He's also documented every phase of the Hubble and now the James Webb Telescope projects. And we're talking about uh, the first images sent back. Uh, we saw one yesterday, some more today from the James Webb Telescope. Absolutely remarkable stuff, so much to learn. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about just what lies ahead because we know the science begins now and there's a lot of people uh, eager to get going and we'll find out what they're going to be looking for after this. Robert Smith is our guest this half hour. He's a historian of science specializing in astronomy at the university of Alberta. He's been documenting for decades, been documenting every phase of the Hubble and now Webb telescope journeys. We got a first taste of what Webb will be delivering, uh, over the last 24 hours, an image released at the white house, no less yesterday. Some more, uh, today, uh, so how, how much more will we see? I mean, we've talked about this in the past. This is literally going to be like a time machine, what we're going to be able to see with, with, with Webb. Um, what comes next now? that We begin the science, but what will we be seeing as, as individuals? I understand there's going to be some more images coming out later in the week as well.
5: Well, one of the great prizes that um, Webb is pursuing is to see the very first galaxies and stars to form. So the great majority of astronomers believe the um, universe originated in what they call the Big Bang, and they date that to about 13.8 billion years ago. And so the Hubble Space Telescope has reached back in time to about maybe 13.3 billion years. But Webb, its hope will go further than that. And so be able to detect really the very first stars and the very first galaxies to form in the universe. So kind of pushing back the the frontier, pushing to, closer towards the Big Bang than Hubble is able to do. And as you were saying, the, the idea of, of a telescope is very much one of a time machine. And even our eyes are quite effective as kind of time machine because when we see the sun... Well, we see the sun as it was about 500 seconds before because the light has had to travel towards us. Or if we think about Pluto, light takes about five hours to um, get to us from Pluto. But one of the galaxies in the image that was shown at the White House yesterday, um, in fact, is a galaxy that is about 13.1 billion Uh, light years away so the light from that galaxy has traveled for 13.1 billion years before it's hit the mirror of the James Webb space telescope where it's been analyzed radioed back to the earth and then we see it in, in that image so I think that is quite a striking thought so that's one of the really key goals see the very first galaxies and stars to form There are also hopes of exploring the atmospheres of exoplanets, rather like the very first um, set of uh, uh, data to come back from the uh, Canadian uh, instrument, the nearest instrument that detected water vapor in the atmosphere as an exoplanet. So there will be a lot more investigations going on of the atmospheres of exoplanets looking to see if there is uh, evidence of um, materials in those atmospheres that maybe is indicative of the possibility of life in uh, th- those particular kinds of exoplanets. Then there will be further investigations of things that follow up what were shown today in the images to do with the, the death of stars, what happens near the end of the life of the star, looking at galaxies which are interacting with each other, which have giant black holes in the centre. So Webb is really going to be examining the universe from the very near to the very distant, because Webb will also be able to examine Mars, it will examine Jupiter, looking at planets within our own system, solar system, and reaching really out to the very furthest reaches of the universe as well. So it's going to be from within our own solar system to the very furthest reaches of the universe.
0: Um, Professor Smith, I gather you have your work cut out for you as the historian of all this. You're going to have lots to talk about. I'm just happy we're all here to see it. It is remarkable, is it not?
5: Yes, and uh, it was quite striking looking at some of the uh, press conferences and discussions and looking at some of the comments on the images from members of the public today and uh, there's really been, I think, quite a strong emotional kind of response to the images that even if you don't really understand fully what's going on with them, then there's still a power to those images that is um, quite striking, I think. They're
0: wonder- they are truly wonderful. Not to over to use a term that's very much used, but in this case, they are indeed wondrous. I guess Robert Smith, thank, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate. It. Look forward to checking in with you again when we have more to talk about in this journey of the James Webb Telescope.
5: Yes, and I fully expect lots of exciting stuff to be coming down the line.